You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. Find us on facebook.com slash surfing or at surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 36 of the Surf Simply podcast. We're recording on Monday, the 14th of November, 2016. My name is Harry Knight, and with me today is Rue Hill. Hello, everyone. Asha King. Hey, podcast land. And Will Forster. Hello, everybody. How's everyone been? Busy weeks? Yeah, nothing much happened this week. Yeah, pretty slow. Quite weak. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I just realized on November 8th, you know, I was gripped like most people across America by the uh, the first day of the England India Test cricket, Ooh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Five yeah. days later, the the match ended and it was a draw. And I think that I feel like a lot of people that it went on far longer than it needed to have, and the result left us collectively wondering how the f- we let this happen. I'm talking about the cricket. <laughs> about yeah, cricket. About cricket. Yeah, cricket. Yeah, cricket. Yeah, we thought that did one all the way over from, the seas too. Did you steal that from Andy Zaltzman at the Bugle? That is a bit of an Andy Zaltzman gag, isn't it? Anything involving cricket is an Andy Zaltzman sort of gag. But yeah, I don't actually like cricket. <laughs> <laughs> I just really wanted to make that joke. <laughs> That's terrible. How about you, Will? You been up to anything much? I have been watching the cricket. <laughs> you actually have been watching the cricket. I've, no, I've not been watching the cricket, but we've had a little bit of small surf at Guiana's the past week or so, so I've been riding voluminous soft top boards that we've recently acquired at Surf Simply. Asha? This last week, pretty much the whole world has been saturated with surf. Like the East Coast of the US has been all time. California's had like its best two week run in forever. Uh, Hawaii has been pumping, and then Costa Rica has been pretty small. Yeah. They're uh, clean though. It's been like it's been really nice surf. Do you know when we have uh, surf that's like it's been the last week where it's kind of offshore and clean and quite small from because because listeners mostly I swim around and and I'll have my video camera in the water and I'm taking video and photos of our guests when the other coaches are sitting out you know coaching them or on the beach with video cameras and and it's kind of a nice way of me to see what what's going on and uh, when it's small and clean like it has been it's just amazing because it's quite a small area that people are taking off in and you just come out of the water and you get so much video those days when it's like you know double over headsets coming in and everyone's a bit more spread out and my poor little legs that's hard work <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> the uh the small condition actually been really nice as well because it cleans up the water and the drone footage has been looking really really good we we took it up the coast to uh, a different beach earlier in the week which is very famous for turtle nesting and the turtles are getting ready yeah, to come in and and i uh, we got this shot and there are just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of turtles in this one little video shot any listeners who haven't had a look if you go on our facebook page or on instagram you can see harry's video from and it's just hovering over the water and you can see like four or five turtles and then the he like he lift the drone up and it just zooms out and out and out and there's just more and more and more and more turtles it's amazing actually your drone skills have got pretty amazing recently like i've noticed that you've been getting very very close to surfers buzzing along well it you know like following them down the line which looks cool but i feel like it is only a matter of time before someone surfs into a drone? Well, I have to say I'm a lot more comfortable flying it a little bit higher up, but every time I fly it more than about five feet away, James tells me I'm too far away and people are too small and the footage doesn't look any good. So James, uh, listeners, is the video editor who makes all the the videos for us and he does an amazing job, but uh, he's so critical of my flying skills. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. I like being criticised by James, though, because he just says it in a very, like, polite kind of soft way. He'll just be like, ah... That wasn't very good, was it? (laughs) (laughs) 
actually for again for any listeners that haven't had a look on our Facebook page I just po- we so we make a video every week right or I say we but James really makes the video he shoots a lot of it Harry shoots a lot of it with the drone I shoot a lot in the water and, and then every week he'll make a video f- of all of the guests that stay at the resort and because we've been closed for September and October we haven't made one for ages and just yesterday I posted one on our Facebook page that James made and like it's so beautiful like he just spends hours and hours in there you know he'll be up all night and he does have little like call of duty breaks and i watched it in the end of it some of the guests are talking about you know why they came and what surfing means to them and i actually had a tear in my eye at the end of the video it was really amazing is a call of duty break him going to the bathroom no no that's not you <laughs> just checking and that. just plays yeah. call of duty for like half an hour before we roll into the news we need to make well not really a correction but Interestingly, the piece that Rue did for us last episode on the wildlife depletion studies was actually picked up by a podcast that I really like that's made by the BBC. It's called More or Less. It's all about sort of statistical analysis and things. It's a really, really interesting piece. And they had a few interesting bits of feedback on what we'd put out. Yeah, it was, it was cool. They did a little bit of a deeper dive specifically into some of the data rather than the implications, which is more what we were talking about. And obviously we did a big piece on it before, so I'm not going to talk about it for ages, but I think there was a couple of caveats that are just important for the sake of scientific accuracy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, we like to hold ourselves to that kind of standard. So one is that when we talked about the uh, average population decline being 52% in 2015 and then 58% it was updated to in 2016, that's actually the average population of species as opposed to the total number of animals in the world the way they actually got that number is it's an average population decline Uh, the example that the the bbc gave which i quite like was if you took a population of 10 frogs in the 1970s and you took a population where there were uh, of birds where there are 100 birds and the frog population declines by 80 percent and the bird population declines by 20 percent you've now got 80 birds and two frogs but the average population decline is 50 percent more or less somewhere around there and and so actually the total number of animals that's been lost is not 50 percent of the total number but what it does mean is that there are certain species that are going to be in trouble in order to get the average species decline down to that sort of 58 percent it means there are certain populations which you mentioned the scrombidae fish populations as being particularly in trouble route and those will pull down the the total figure for for all the populations yeah and so and that was one of the other aspects of the data was that there was a bias towards coastal areas so you know obviously it's a lot easier to measure fish and marine life around the coast than it is way out in the middle of the ocean and so any amount of data is only as good as the data you've collected. Yep. Uh, and it, you know, it may be that coastal areas have dropped more, where of course there's more uh, human density, and they may have dropped less out in the middle of the ocean. Yep. So you know, that's another thing. And, and of course, the what, one thing we didn't mention, which was on the original report, is there is a margin of 10% either way. So the reason I think all of these things are worth mentioning is because the, the publishers of the report and the people who are working for the WWF are really concerned that and this is the point we made in the last episode, if people feel like the whole situation is already done for and we're already over the cliff, they kind of resign themselves to it. We're not over the cliff yet and a lot can be done. The real message is that over the next five or six years, we really need to be addressing CO2 levels because that's going to affect ocean acidification, which 
you know, kills off the coral reefs like we talked about, which is where 25% of ocean life lives. And thanks to the, you know, the Paris Climate Change uh, Conference, we've now got an agreement in place where that's just starting to happen. It's it's not as good as we would hope for, but it's something. Of course, the news which has come about in the last few days is that uh, Miron Ebel has been announced as the leader of the EPA, the, the US's Environmental Protection Agency, under the new administration. And unfortunately, he's what the media call a climate sceptic, which basically means he's a climate science denier. And that's really bad news. There was an emergency meeting actually day before yesterday, I think. And the public statement from them, uh, which is a group of scientists working in the field of climate sciences, was that if the US does a U-turn, it's you know, not the end of the world. There's still a lot that can be done and it mm-hmm. can be mitigated for. But according to the BBC report that I was reading this morning, the, the feelings were pretty negative when people were off mic. So that's uh, kind of the reality. But the, the message that everyone who cares about it wants people to take home is we are not over the cliff. This is not something that we should give up on. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to roll into the news now, but we are going to experiment a little bit with a new format for the podcast. All the best feedback that we've had from you guys over the last year or two has been for the the longer form pieces that we've done on various different subjects like the tides and surfboard construction and things like that. So we're going to try and move the podcast towards doing more of those and maybe focusing a little bit less on sort of current affairs within the surf industry. That said, we do still want to, you know, just just make a little nod to it. So in the news this week, uh, we do still have ongoing negotiations between Quicksilver and the ICAO family as to whether they're going to manage to run the Eddie ICAO contest this year. As a little update from our last episode, it turns out there is a permit been issued, but it has Quicksilver's name and it cannot run without Quicksilver. So if it's going to run, Quicksilver and the ICAOs kind of have to sort the differences out. It was so weird reading all of the media about it because it seems like the WSL have stepped forward and combined with Quicksilver have said that we're going to put all the money forward to run the whole event and that way we can keep going under the current permit and the ICAO family said that that's not acceptable to them but without really saying what it is. And they, they say it's not about money but I'm, I'm just not really sure what else... It, it could be about... Yeah, this, I, it's like the ICO statement was, it's not about money. And then the Quicksilver statement was, here's some more money. Yeah, here's plenty of money. <laughs> and then, they, then the response was, yeah, but it's really not about money. So next up in the news, the uh, Enland Surf Park, after a week or two of being open and running and looking pretty fun and pretty exciting, turns out surfboards are sharp and the pool liner that they used uh, developed quite a lot of holes and they've had to drain the whole pool to uh, fix the liner. So that that's what made the pool close, was holes from surfboards hitting it. Yeah. Your fins and noses. And didn't it fill up someone's house that lived nearby or something? I, I couldn't quite work out from, the, from all the news articles whether it was when they opened all the, the drains and let the water out, whether the system didn't quite cope and it dumped a load of water sort of into the road, or whether it was the pool was leaking and was leaking all over the road and therefore they drained it properly to, to fix the problem. I couldn't quite work out which came first. How, uh, how shallow are these pools? I've seen people walking around in what looks like about waist-deep water. but um, Yeah, because I mean, it, at the resort here in, in Nassara, we obviously teach a lot of entry-level surfers and the number of times that the surfboard or the surfer really slugs the bottom is really, really low. So uh, as regular listeners to the show will know, we talk about wave parks quite a lot and how much we would like the opportunity to be able to coach in them just because it reduces the variables when we're coaching. And if you remember, even when we started talking about them like nearly two years ago, we were sort of saying how we'd like to open a surf simply with its own 
bespoke wave park at some point, but we really want to just wait until they can make them so they don't break. Yeah. I think the take home is that's probably the right approach and we're still very <laughs> yeah. much not there yet. Yes. Hurley have teamed up with Chevrolet to release a, a special edition pickup truck. Did any of you guys spot this one? I don't think this truck's ever going to come out, but it's well, great they, publicity for Chevy and for Hurley, isn't it? Well, they did say, I mean, it's concept vehicle for, for the US motor shows. They're going to take it around the motor shows and just show it off as a an example of a collaboration. So I really liked that the key is like a waterproof band that goes around your wrist, which yeah. I think is amazing because... Uh, it's just a nightmare trying to find a car. Like down here in Nassara, trying to buy a four-wheel drive truck out of you know, new from Toyota or Nissan or you know any of those companies that doesn't have an electronic key. Yeah. All the new trucks, the 2016 and 17 ones, they just don't even have it as an option, which mm-hmm. is super annoying. Yeah, and then you're trying to hide the key in the sand somewhere. And then pain. every time you're out surfing, you're worrying and like, has someone got the key? Did someone see where you hid the key? And the ironic thing is, that a lot of these uh, car manufacturers have adverts where people are surfing in them. Like, you know, the, the tour is obviously sponsored by Jeep. Yeah. yeah. And it's always like the Jeep pulling up at the beach and then people getting their boards out and stuff. Jeep have got the same thing. Yeah. Although some of the other things I wasn't sure about, like it said it's going to have neoprene seat covers, which seems like the worst idea possible. Yeah, neoprene just gets really smelly and is not easy to clean. Yeah. It's exactly what I don't want my car seats <laughs> made out of. It's, it's one of those interesting things, isn't it, that... that the idea of having waterproof seats, well, that means I can get in in my wetsuit, sit down and drive. Well, that sounds brilliant. But the water's still going to come out of your wetsuit and it's, and it's still going to go, go somewhere. somewhere. And if you waterproof the seat, that just means it's going to run off the seat and down into the floor of the truck and get that rusty. And it's, it, yeah. The only answer is to not ever get in your car in wet clothes. That is just the only way to do it. Yeah, yeah. I, I even make my mum sit in the back of the pickup when she hasn't got dry clothes after we've been surfing. Yeah, so have you, you seen my new solution to that problem? It's a little battery-powered shower. Oh, that's amazing. got a little lithium-ion battery in it and a, a little water pump, and you can charge it up from the USB socket in, uh, in the car, and you just put a pail of water of some sort. I've, I've got a big bucket with a, a sealable lid. That goes in the back of the truck, and then drop the shower in, proper shower, rinse off all the salt and everything. It's, it's lovely. Yeah, that's a really, really nice. good idea. And then I get in the car in nice, dry, clean clothes and yeah. Yeah, I think that's a piece of genius. I think the it's the sort of thing you usually see on Shark Tank, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the idea of being able to drive in a wet wetsuit is very overrated. Okay, uh, two little uh, bits of contest news that taken place. The HIC Pro at Sunset took place, Mason Ho winning it. Yeah, Mason, two wins now in two Sunset. Wins. So looking good for the, uh, for the Triple Crown that's just started yesterday. Oh, I love watching Mason Ho surf Sunset. I, yeah, I love watching him surf those big boards out there. It's cool. Yeah, Mason Ho can surf a big board better than just about anybody, I think. He, he's really, really good at using the whole board, and he's a pretty small guy too. So. Yeah. Yeah. And so the other contest that took place, the first tour uh, event at a wave pool in the UK. The UK tour had an event at the Surf Snowdonia wave pool, and they, they had to adjust the format slightly. To, to make it work, you know, obviously a standard 30-minute heat wasn't wasn't gonna gonna work, but yeah, it's really really cool. There's a, I'll put a little video on the show notes so you guys can can see it. They just as purely a promotional piece, it did not make me want to visit Wales very bad. Looked very cold. <laughs> yeah, they were they all were, in wetsuits and boots. Yeah, and they're in hoods and boots and gloves. I was just thinking, ah, oh, you know, if I'm gonna go surf a wave pool, I think I want to do it in a warmer climate. Um, final piece of news then before we move on to our main features is that the surfer poll is coming up as always as we roll into December the the surfer poll takes place and the nominations for the best short movies the 
best web series and the best documentaries have now all been released so i will put some links to those in the show notes there's some really really good little short movies and and web series that uh, actually it's quite quite nice to see a lot of them have been things that we've recommended as what to watch items over the last year or so but the other one was some documentaries that heard every year that the, the documentary list comes out and there's always one or two that I didn't know existed all right, so the Big Wave World Tour event just wrapped up at Jaws. Just a little wrap-up on it. It was won by Maui locals Billy Kemper and Paige Alms, which is pretty cool. Both locals who surf the wave really, really often. The surf was big, but not massive by Jaws standards, which is still... I don't know, man. I think it was pretty massive. So if you were to take a video of last year's event and then this year's event, it's like it's pretty big difference, but it's still it's, it's in that realm of surf that is just crazy. I guess yeah. the tricky thing with Jaws as well is that because it was, you know, pioneered for the first 10 years by toe surfing, mm-hmm. they really pushed the limits of, you know, how big of a wave can break at Jaws. Yeah. Which then as, as people start paddling and, and as well, you know, in a paddle contest, it's only going to be one or two of those waves in, in a, a single day that are going to be the real like peak waves of, the, of, of that swell. Honestly, I thought it would be a bit of a letdown after last year's just adrenaline fest, but I was pretty much equally impressed. Yeah. This year, because of the smaller size, there were so much. There's so many more waves ridden. Yeah. So I mean, when you watched it, it was almost like you were watching just a normal contest. You know, they were catching a wave every couple minutes. Yeah, I thought. I mean, I think that's the amazing thing, isn't it? Because normally, when you watch one of those big wave contests, it can be so slow. You know, they send them out for an hour heat, and you might get five waves ridden in that mm-hmm. that total heat. People come in with no waves ridden at the end of yeah. that hour and then this was just incredible there's guys going over the falls on 50 foot yeah. barreling waves I wish that there was a little bit more west in the swell and it really had that big west ball jaws just because the guys like Kai Lenny and Albie Lair pretty much just reinvented big wave tube riding and that wasn't really on offer how great has it been to see the best big wave riders in the world over the last five or six years move right back to paddle surfing instead of toe surfing yeah I, it's been incredible uh, and, and it doesn't seem to have compromised what they're doing on the waves either. Yeah. You know, I mean, back in 2010, I remember Led Hamilton made some comments about how he thought that paddling jaws was kind of wasting the wave because really to surf it to its fullest, you needed to tow in. And I, I feel like that's demonstrably been shown not to be true. Yeah. I like how they're kind of both evolving somehow intertwined in that Kai Lenny put on such a good performance in the morning. And then after they called the event off, he went out and towed when the conditions weren't probably weren't even rideable to paddle. And he was surfing jaws like it was lower trestles. I mean, just really deep barrels. He did an air over a 30-foot in, in-ball section. That was amazing. Was that was to, so cool. I was about to say, going back to what you were saying about Led Hamilton's statement and you know whether it's holding back, I think the riding that's being done now by the paddling surfers is very on par with where the toe surfers were 10 years ago. Yeah. But then you look at what Kyle Lenny's doing when he toes. I mean, he was drawing lines all over the face, George, you know, huge sweeping cutbacks that the guys on the paddle boards can't do, you know, the size and length of the boards and also the position that they're taking off in. They can't surf the wave in the same way that a toe surfer can. And I, I'm not saying that either one is necessarily better, but uh, I would be very surprised if we see the guys on those 11-foot boards surfing in the way that that the guys are on the tow boards i kind of wish the wsl would use a little bit different format for these events though because guys like kai lenny and albie lair and shane dorian didn't even make it to the semifinals or maybe to the semis but not into the finals and i i think they should just steal the format of the eddie i cow 
where in big waves, you might sit out there for an hour and a half, two hours and not get the one. And, and the Eddie Aikau, uh, for the listeners who aren't used to the format differences, they have the entire field surf multiple times, and then they add their scores up from the entire day rather than the typical WSL format, which has six-man heats, top three advance, pitting the winners against the winners. But it's, it's kind of just luck of the draw whether you're in position for the right wave. Yeah, and I think that that format reflects what big wave surfing is more about, exactly. which is how big a wave can you get. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that means, you know, you sit there for four or five hours and you don't get a wave. You know, whereas the WSL contest format is more about performance surfing and therefore your best two waves in 20 minutes or half an hour makes sense. Yeah, and one thing I'm definitely digging about their format is how they take your top score and they multiply it by two, which I think makes so much sense for big wave surfing. Let's say you got a 30-foot barrel and then now you need to go hunt for a backup and the timing might just not allow it. So I think that really kind of helps even the playing field. So good to see the women out there. Yes. Yeah. I was more impressed with the women's event more than maybe anything. Those women were absolutely charging. See, I was really impressed. I thought that the, the fact that the women's event was in was great. But I did think that because they alternated between the men's and the women's heats and so the women were out there in very very similar conditions to that that the men were out in and watching the women go out there and charging on those those waves was hugely hugely impressive but the waves that were ridden were taken off at the shoulder where the men were pretty much backdooring the main peak although the surfing that was being done was being done very well it seemed to me like a lot of the girls that were in that contest were maybe a bit underprepared they didn't actually even necessarily know where to sit and I know Paige Alms surfs out there a lot but I just wonder how much prep any of the other women had had because I wasn't even aware there was going to be a women's contest until two days before the event yeah I I think the women's performances are going to just be improved by time I mean think of how much women's WCT performances have grown since they started running the events more in conjunction with the men Uh, as soon as they started running the men and the women back to back it was almost a quantum leap and the women surfing and the I mean they were showing they were charging out there they were going for the big waves they had windier conditions they definitely weren't taking off in the same place but I I was so impressed and also I think the significance of this isn't about were the waves being surfed as well as the men were they being utilized as well as the men was it did it make sense for us as viewers you know did we want to see that compared to watching like Billy Kemper and people like Shane Dorian pulling into those unmakeable barrels which just still blows my mind. Yeah. I just can't wrap my head around yeah, Billy where you have to be at mentally to do that just for fun. Um, yeah. But I think what the significance is that people like, well, Kiala Kenley, who's been doing this for a long time outside of the contest format, and Paige Elms here, who was just, I think, head and shoulders above the other women in this event. Who, by the way, is 25 years old. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. So I think the significance is that they're showing young girls all over the world that you know this is something that not only can be done but if they want to be great women surfers they should be including in their repertoire they they you know if they want to be the best female surfers in the world they can't shy away from surf like this telling themselves that girls don't do it yeah. uh, i mean that i think that's really the it's more of a cultural significance you know rather than you know how good was that specific heat yeah you had Laura Enover making the finals who by all accounts her reputation's pretty much built off being like the tour party girl and she, like, she was going mental out there. I mean, I would argue that not many men WCT competitors would be out there. Yeah. So that I was really impressed by that. It's too bad that she hurt her knee and couldn't surf in the finals, which brings me to the point of three out of the six women in the finals couldn't surf because they're injured. 
Now, I wonder why that is. I mean, do you think that's preparation for the contest? Do you think it's just, you know, that we're talking about bone density and muscle mass before? Funny you ask that. Uh, I found it super interesting that it was all knee injuries. So I did a little research, and a 2009 study by the University of Colorado at Denver found that women are six to eight times more likely to injure their knees. So they, they just have a, a higher chance of getting injured. And, and the biggest reason they found for that is women tend to have more of an imbalance in the strength ratio between their quadriceps and their hamstrings. A male athlete is more likely to decelerate using the hamstring, and women are more likely to use the quadricep. And the quadricep is where you get the hyperextension and the ACL damage. It really is. They're just more likely to get hurt in that manner. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so it kind of raises a bit of an ethical question, you know. Well, it kind of goes back to the conversation we were having a couple of episodes ago, you know, about gender and competition. I wonder how much of those injuries and the wipeouts were just how they were handling themselves in the wipeouts. For example, you know, if I was to fall at 60-foot jaws, there's pretty much a 100% chance I'd get hurt because I don't have the skills to withstand that the impact of that wave, but... I know Kiala Kenley and Emily Erickson were both taken to hospital with probable ligament damage. I didn't hear Laura Enover was, was taken off, yeah, off the I pitch. Yeah, I think she was hurting, but not... But Laura Enover is fighting for requalification on the WCT, and she, she's she got to perform well at Honolulu. So I yeah. wonder if she, you know, had a fall that was nasty, but not, you know, yeah. not too bad, and just elected to not surf in the final to give herself a fighting chance of requalification in the CT. Oh, interesting. Maybe. I hope Laura Enova does get back on the CT. Yeah. I guess that, you know, going back to your, the point that you made about, is it about how they fall? You know, you could answer that by looking at the injuries that people are getting in big waves and then mm-hmm. like graphing them out relative to their experience in big waves. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I doubt anyone's done that, but that would be really interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, it'd be interesting if you saw that, you know, the, the longer people were surfing in big waves, the less injuries they were getting. And then, um, you know, to be able to observe different ways people are falling, if that could be done. I think there's just so much room for more science to be done. (laughs) I would be be willing to bet that time spent in big waves and number of big wave injuries are definitely inversely proportional. I mean, it's it's funny, you know, even when we're just coaching here at Guiana's every day and you see how much energy people use when they wipe out, when they're Mm -hmm. inexperienced and desperately scrambling for the surface, tensing up as they fall, all kinds of unnecessary things which you know could potentially then do damage if there was an impact when you're really tensed up you know when we were in the office we were watching the contest uh, jesse and i and jesse mm-hmm. said would you paddle out there and i was like no and she was like ah oh, you've just you're just not my hero anymore <laughs> and you know when you're looking at it from that angle up on the cliff looking down at the waves they still look pretty big but then when you see the photos that people took from the yeah in channel, the water oh my goodness yeah, you know, and you're looking yeah. up at those things from the side. It's really easy for me to watch the webcast and say, yeah, you know what? I'd give it a go. But I am so sure that if I was out there, I would not give it a go. Yeah, we can definitely like take our hats off to everyone that paddled out there, men and women, just incredible human beings. So I wanted to talk a little bit this week about judging and what we can do to improve it and you know, make it more objective and less subjective. We talked about it a little bit a couple of episodes ago after the controversy that happened at the Hurley contest, Pat Gadauskas's heat. Mm-hmm. The place that we kind of started was asking the question, is judging subjective in essence? Like, does it have to come down to the opinion of uh, 
one individual or is it a problem of complexity it's just that there's so many moving parts and it's difficult to articulate them and, and kind of put your finger on them specifically and as a kind of proxy for describing the complexity of judging we instead just say that it's subjective and if the latter is the case I feel that that's a little bit of a cop-out and we can do a better job at at least communicating better and trying to specifically describe as many of those areas of complexity as we can. I think that subjectivity in sports sort of lies on a sliding scale where you have on one side where you know everything's in the eye of the beholder and objective is on the other side like high jumping for example where whoever jumps the highest is, is obviously the winner and I think all we need to do is just push it slightly further along that scale. I think surfing by nature always is going to have a bit of subjectivity because it's just a core part of surfing that there's different things that different people find beautiful and aesthetically pleasing on the wave. But I think we can all agree that competitive surfing would benefit if it just got pushed a little bit more objective. And I think kind of how we do that is what's important. So whether it's subjective or whether it's just very complex it's going to benefit either way from being made as objective as possible because mm -hmm. that's going to make the competitors more able to know what it is they're trying to show the judges. Yeah, there's always going to be an area of subjectivity just in how the rules are applied. You know, the, even with it, with something that's fairly straightforward like a game of soccer or or the high jump that you mentioned, you know, whether somebody's technique falls within the rule books at the end of the day comes down to someone's subjective decision and they may or may not agree that the technique or the, the tactic used was okay. Subjectiveness is when you just have an emotional reaction to something mm -hmm. that's totally no amount of objective logic or algorithm writing can define it. For example, if one person does a big layback where they throw their hands out behind them and they're all kind of relaxed, you know, like John John does and Andy Irons used to so beautifully, and someone else does a really powerful carving turn the speed is equal the spray is equal the speed coming out of the maneuver and the critical part of the wave is equal then yeah sure that's it's just an emotional reaction which one of those things kind of gives you goosebumps and goes oh man i'd love to be able to do that mm -hmm. that i think that is subjective mm -hmm. um you know in terms of like one person rode a tube someone else went for a big top turn which one of these do we score higher I think that's just a question of complexity. You can say when the wave is this height, when the barrel is this round or this long. You know, and sure, it might be too complex for a, a human to be able to use in real time, but that's kind of the point I'm making. That's just complexity. That's not subjectiveness. Yeah, so what sort of metrics do you think would be beneficial to making judging more objective? I think that one thing you can do as we go forward with the technology is actually measuring the boards. So, you know, we've got Trace right now, mm -hmm. which I think are doing a fantastic job. You know, that's only going to get better. I, I, you know, I really like the idea that you've got fiberglass covering a board and the fiberglass is, is measuring the entire board. It's measuring the, the angle that the board's on, how fast it's going, going, how fast the water's running underneath it. And now the judges can actually have some data on the screen in front of them. Yeah. You know, this turn was done at X miles an hour, this many pounds of pressure on the deck as it went through the turn. You know, I think that would be fantastic. We're not there yet from a technological point of view, but would you guys like that? Well, we kind yeah. of are actually, because if you think the GoPros now have the ability to broadcast over quite a long distance. So it, it should be theoretically possible to use the same technology with Trace and broadcast data from the board back to the to the stand when using trace or something with objective data i think it's going to be really important that we're careful how we interpret it so let's say that we're awarding points for how much force a surfer puts in their turn um, that'd be really huff tough to pit a surfer like Philippe toledo against a surf like jordy smith right because 
force is just the product of mass times acceleration. And just by way of Jordy having more mass, it's going to be really, really unfair to somebody who's light and you know springy like Toledo. Okay, so then you can balance that out against speed. And you can say, all right, let's say that Philippe Toledo is coming out of the turn faster, but Jordy Smith's putting more weight into the turn. Then you apportion X percentage of the points for force and X percentage for speed. And you could even have them so that those are ratios um, of someone's weight. Uh, you could then have some of the points apportioned for speed going through a turn and some of them for speed in between turns. So the flow. So someone might put more force in a turn but come out with less speed versus someone putting less force into a turn and coming out with more speed. And you could tell the competitors how you were going to weight those points before the heat given what the waves are like. Developing the algorithm itself would be a bit of a challenge, but you could do it like this. You get you know, 100 uh, judges to all grade which one of those two turns was, was better, like just from a mm -hmm. conventional judging point of view. And then you look at how you have to weight the data in order to marry up with what all of those, you know, 50 or 100 judges currently agree is the better turn. So you could build an algorithm for judging top down rather than bottom up. And I know there's a lot of people out there who are going, oh man, this guy is sucking every bit of soul out of soul. <laughs> but guys, like, we love tech. You're listening to the wrong podcast if you don't yeah. like stuff like this. Which brings me to my next point that currently the three metrics that Trace gives you is angle of your turns, degree on rail, and acceleration, right? Um, Those are like the three big ones that so, it spits out. Well, so the, the, there's two different things. Is One is there's the the metrics that you're able to pull from the trace device if you're sitting mm -hmm. there analyzing the data and the second is what they pump through to the app because what they're pumping through into the into the app is is much more limited but but yeah is is how on rail the board is and how many degrees the board turns through you know the the direction change that the board makes okay so let's take two surfers Jadson Andre John John Florence on those three metrics I would argue that Jadson Andre puts the board on a harder angle, more degrees in his turns. He's doing crazy force and acceleration throughout them. But no one here would argue that Jadson Andre is a better surfer than John John Florence. So I think it's very tough right now for us to use that data correctly. How committed and, and how difficult the maneuver is isn't going to be data that's going to come from, from the trace. But mm -hmm. it is, as we said, it's something that can still be objectivized. It's just that you're not going to objectivize it by using trace. What you're going to use trace for is the speed, power, flow element of the criteria. Plus, you don't have... I'm, I'm not advocating yet, because I, I don't believe this, or I might change my mind one day, because I do like changing my mind about stuff. But I don't think that I'm that we would replace all the judging with you know data. I think it could just be a tool to along with replay, for example. So what if, if we're moving it towards more objective data... data you could change the whole judging system to something that's more similar to other similarly subjective sports like figure skating or gymnastics, where in the Olympics, they have one panel of judges that starts from zero, and they add, basically add points for uh, difficulty, and then they have another set of judges that start at 10, and they deduct style points. So, And at the end, they take those two scores and Ooh, add them together. Nice so you have one objective data score and then you have one that's stylistic and then you add them together at the end spit it out i love that idea i didn't know that that's how they did it at the olympics i didn't know either until i researched similarly subjective sports and if any listeners out here are really familiar with gymnastics i found this super interesting uh and i just got this from 
uh, NBC's description of, of, of judging in the Olympics. So if anybody has anything to add on that, I would really like to hear it. So going on to the judges then and talking about them and their actual role, I, th I think there's two things that we can do here, right? So first of all, whenever you want to get an objective result out of something, the first thing you do is you, you try and blind it as much as possible, double blind it if you can. So, you know, what can we do to help blind the judges to remove their subconscious biases? Well, you know, one, there's two no-brainers that leap out at me. One is that at the moment we have the highest seeded surfer in red and the lowest seeded surfer in blue. Right, so when the surfers paddle out, you're, you're signaling to the judges, this guy is higher in the rankings than this guy. That's a little bit like doing a clinical trial where you're giving people two pills and going, this is the red one, this is supposed to get rid of your headache, this is the white one and it probably won't. Now you take them and you tell me which one's better. <laughs> right? So the first thing I think they should do is get rid of that system. And I understand why it's there, it's for the benefit of the viewers, but really the commentators, it's like they are commentators there, that they're there to tell us stuff. They do often run out of things to talk about. Mm -hmm. give, all it does is give them, you know, an extra 30 seconds of banter each heat describing which surfer is higher on the rankings. So I think that's just an absolute no-brainer. Another no-brainer is that the head judge's role, and I don't know specifically how this works on WSL contests, but I know that when I was first did all my judging courses and everything, the head judge's role was very much to bring together all of the judges. So he would stand behind the five judges, or she, and say, okay, you know, is anyone, have we got any outliers with that score? Okay, you thought it was a two? Okay, everyone else thought it was a five or a six. Speaking to the person who gave them a two, you know, did you bear in mind this element of the, of the wave? And they'd be like, oh no, I didn't think about that and push the, the score up. That's exactly the opposite of what you want from uh, Yeah, that's from a, so amateur. Yeah, that's, that's just the, that, again, like, bring it back to a science experiment. That's like the people tabulating the data and then someone coming in going, oh, you've got an outlying result here. Let's just delete that one or let's just change that one. Or yeah, that's just, that's, that's exactly what using a panel of judges and throwing out the higher low, that's like exactly against it. Yeah, there, sh there should, I, in my opinion, there should be, I, maybe there is already, I, as I said, I don't know how the WSL do it, but there should be no communication between the judges. They should have no idea what the other judges are doing as much as possible and it probably isn't possible. We should try and blind them to what the consequence for the heat is yeah. you know, when they're awarding the scores for any given wave. So they don't know if they give it a 7.2 versus 7.3, that's going to make the difference between putting the surfer through the heat or failing the heat. Having said that, and we mentioned this on the last show, again, this is as I was taught judging and it may have changed a bit since then, but we were taught it's not about the score you give the wave, it's about making sure the best surfer advances through the heat. Mm -hmm. So that's is slightly at odds with you know, trying to just blindly score each wave without bias. Certainly, I believe that the, the it, it is still true that the scale that they're judging on should be reset each heat, that the, the aim of the judging is to make sure that the correct person advances through. It is not that every 9.6 ride should be absolutely the same. I think your, your point about the, uh, you know, the head judge adjusting scores, when you have people like you and me turning up, and I don't know about you, but you know, I judged a national level competition. I'm not a competent enough judge for there not to be someone looking over my shoulder and making sure that there aren't outliers. You know, that's, it would be perfectly possible for, for an amateur like me that's judged, you know, one or two contests. They're always short of judges at, at amateur contests like that to come in and actually really screw up someone's career. 
That's where you delete the highest and lowest judge, right? That's the idea. Well, but what system. if it's not just a highest and lowest judge problem? You know, you've got five people on the panel. What if all the scores are all over the place? Like people need to, in that amateur environment, it is important that the scores are pulled together. I think by the time someone's judging a world tour event, they should not be making those errors. Like it should, mm-hmm. it should be at, at that point, they shouldn't be needing to be told what is good and bad surfing, what is a five versus what is an eight. They should already know that. One other thing you could do to help blind the judges. Now, this might be completely impractical. I haven't thought about it from a contest organizer point of view. But wouldn't it be cool if you had all the judges blinded and then you had all of the waves from all of the different heats played out of order to the judges so the judges just saw like all of the waves through the whole day played one after another without knowing who was against whom and what heat it was and they just scored every single wave that was coming up in front of them right and then those were the scores at the end of the day that got plugged into the heats and at the end of the round you were then told who went through and what the scores were that would properly uh, the, properly blind it. The problem with that would be the conditions changed throughout the day. And judging a heat that happened at 9 o'clock in the morning on high tide would be really, really tough to pit somebody who's surfing the onshore low tide later. So different conditions, I think, would be allowed for by the fact that the scores would vary wildly because you'd be scoring someone as a 2 when it was onshore and the waves were small, whereas early in the day it might have been bigger and offshore and you know someone might go to 7. Like, yeah, there would be that difference. Mm-hmm. But then people would still only be getting judged against other people who are surfing at the same time as them um i think probably the simplest improvement we could make is have the judges explain what they're looking for on a certain day and we've talked about this a couple times on the podcast but the the whole like veil of mystery around the scores is is just ridiculous so for example when mendina did that big air at pipeline last year in a day where only two brides had scored he got the score on an air and that was just kind of out of left field and that could have totally been mitigated if the head judge just explained, you know, either before what they were looking for or after, you know, this is why we gave them that score. And that just, that doesn't happen. Yeah. I think at that level, that needs yeah. to be the role of the head judge is effectively to talk for, there were five people made the call. The head judge's his role should be to communicate what happened and why mm-hmm. it happened. And so, so that brings us on to the final point I wanted to make, which is more about communication. That I think is kind of lacking at the moment, as you say, Asher, is the dialogue between the judges and the competitors. And I think what we saw after the Hurley contest was a lot of people taking to social media and having a rant. And we talked a little bit about how that may or may not be contradicting their contracts, you know, with the, with the WSL and mm-hmm. they may be fined or banned from events if they word things in the way that the WSL doesn't like. It seems like there should be some kind of inbuilt system you know whether it's that if a surfer comes out of a heat and they're not happy with the score there is the head judge right there and, and, and like you say Harry that's the job the head judge should have should be there to talk to the surfer and to the media and to the viewing public about why the score was given and mm-hmm. you know what it was and I think that the, the judges should be able to say oh we might have got this wrong we weren't totally sure about this we gave it to this guy but it was super close and you know a different judging panel may have gone the other way Judges are so scared to say that. And it's, it does happen sometimes. I think it's one of those things where they've put in so many checks and balances to help mitigate outlying results. You know, so if you catch 10 waves in a heat, like only your top two count, you get eight throwaways. Mm-hmm. You know, you have 12 events in a year. You can throw away two of those. You have five judges scoring each way, each wave. You throw away the highest and the lowest and average out the middle three. Mm-hmm. There's already a huge amount being done to try and allow for those outlying results and, and help make sure the best surfer goes through. And I think sometimes the surfers forget that all of that is already there. Uh, you know, and I think that everyone has to be okay with it being close and it being a little bit controversial sometimes. As much as I complain about the judging and 
different you know, things that appeal to you or me. I actually really like that about surfing. I really like that, you know, four of us can sit in this room right now and the thing, something that Will likes and really appreciates that a surfer does, I might appreciate less. It's led to some pretty heated arguments in the office. It leads to, it leads <laughs> to some really good podcasts, I think. <laughs> we were talking earlier about the first surf contest in a wave pool and sure, it's not that exciting. We're still, like wave pools are right Wave pools now are like what aeroplanes were in 1910, you know, <laughs> where the guy's like running along, flapping his wings. God, it's pretty nice. You know, I and, wouldn't use it. but And the data measuring nice. technology on waves, I think, you know, again, it's kind of at the same stage. So, I mean, I'm not suggesting that this be done now, but I think that it's exciting to think about what could be possible in 30 or 40 years time. You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. Okay, so in the UK news recently, there have been reports of the Bournemouth Artificial Reef finally, and you're going to have to excuse all the puns. Um, I didn't write them. They just naturally <laughs> go into this kind of story. Uh, so Bournemouth Artificial Reef, um, located at Boscombe, has finally gone down the drain. Is that one? Is that, is that a good pun? How is, it, how is that a pun? A drain, well, I just think water, the drains. sea. Oh, okay. All right. You know, down the drain. That sort of thing. Yeah. It is a sinking ship, perhaps, maybe. Anyway, so <laughs> <after> <laughs> moving on. Um, so after nearly 20 years of ups and downs and brief development, uh, the reef has finally been condemned. It basically started out as a way of developing a, a particular area of Bournemouth uh, where they would introduce a little bit more tourism by having this artificial reef. Uh, the, the location itself is a bit of a surf break to start with and they had the optimism, blind optimism perhaps, that having an artificial reef would uh, make a more reputable wave. It's, it's also an area, it's, for listeners that don't know the UK too well, uh, Bournemouth is on the south coast and the, the bit of England that faces directly to France so it doesn't get a lot of waves but it gets a little bit one of the things that that stretch of coast struggles with massively is coastal erosion big cliffs there that are just getting stripped away by you know feet every year and I think and the other thing that was hoped was that the artificial reef would cause the waves to break before they got to the cliff and would therefore slow down the coastal erosion. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, uh, on that same subject, the company who developed and designed the reef, ASR, they're, they're most of the locations that they built reefs for, the, the primary role has been to reduce coastal erosion. They're a sort of an ocean modelling and management company who, who provides solutions for, for exactly that type of thing. Yeah. Now, on the opposite side of that, this particular reef was marketed as a sort of surface haven. And so uh, in the original proposal by a ASR, um, it was aimed and targeted at the surfing population. And so even though that the coastal erosion was perhaps the primary role, there was still a little bit of emphasis on this, uh, on surf tourism. So I, I thought it was really strange that the Bournemouth was chosen because of the lack of fetch in the ocean there. So fetch listeners is just the distance of ocean that the wind can blow over and therefore create the swell and the fetch is really small there because it's really just Bournemouth down to France which I don't know how many miles is that it's not far is it it's, it's not far at that point but actually that stretch of coast gets good whenever there's a big low pressure down in Biscay okay and it, oh it, so it comes it, it comes can actually from push, the west up yeah the it can pull push swell up the English Channel. Yeah, also um, Bournemouth wasn't chosen for the artificial reef as such. It was a proposal from Bournemouth Council. They wanted a solution to the erosion and... Increased tourism. Exactly, build an economy in that particular area of Bournemouth. 
how often does Bournemouth get good just without a reef there? I mean, like, so I haven't ever surfed down in Bournemouth and I haven't surfed the south coast all that much. But I'm thinking it's kind of like, it's only like a barely double digit days a year that you're getting overhead surf, isn't it? I, overhead surf, I would probably not very frequent, but actually in terms of days where they are able to surf, you know, if, if you are happy to surf sort of, you know, knee to waist high onshorey mush, um, <laughs> <laughs> then, you know, pretty often actually, yeah. But it, it really, it's, it's, you know, if, if you're a surfer and you live in that area and that's what you have, then this kind of proposal seemed at one point to be a great thing. Yeah, I mean, the Isle of Wight has some really good waves. It's always quite surprising to me when you see areas that where you're surfing reefs where there can be no waves and then as soon as the reef is just the right height and the tide moves, suddenly the waves go from, you know, one foot up to overhead high. I mean, the Desert Point is somewhere that leaps out at me and, of course, Mundaka is another place. And I remember before they built the reef thinking, okay, there's not a lot of swell there. It doesn't often get over waist high. I wonder if they build this reef right if if they've got the right information when they're putting it together, if suddenly they're going to be able to just magnify the swell that is there into something that's going to be overhead high well that that was part of the original proposal was they said you know that the number of days that are surfable right now is not super high but the number of days when there is swell in the water if we can use the reef to amplify that we can triple the number of surfable days so how did they do well not particularly well unfortunately their actual construction with was plagued with fault and the reef almost immediately started to degrade as soon as it was finished. The The actual construction was sand-filled geotextile bags and pretty uh, soon after it being completed, the, a lot of the bags ripped, sand leaked, crevices formed between those, the actual geotextile bags and so rips formed around the reef and they pretty soon after, um, they actually stopped surfing completely over it. Am I right in thinking that the consultants that they used for the design of the reef were a New Zealand company that have now gone into administration? Uh, correct and then incorrect. They are, it's called ASR, they are a New Zealand uh, company. They are still operating as they were then. Um, the MD, Nick Bahunin, has to all accounts disappeared. Um, <laughs> maybe post, got stuck down between yeah, the Maybe bags. so, maybe so. But actually the, the company itself, I don't know too much about their projects outside of these reefs, but they actually built quite a lot and they're still in business now doing the same thing as well as the ocean modeling and the management uh, for erosion and ecological assessments and all things like that. Do you know if they've done any other artificial reefs? They have. They So they've done, they did the Boscombe Reef, they did another at Mount Monganui in New Zealand, which again, similar results really. It's another failure the wave only breaks a couple of times a year it's falling apart now there's there's uh, new stories of dangerous rips surrounding it and it, you know the, the Boscombe Reef was a million pound project and Mount Monganui was a 1.5 million New Zealand dollar project all with the same results uh, there was also Kovalam Reef in India exactly the same story right after it was the opening um, it actually had a very nice left peak people said um, apparently there's a video online I wasn't able to find it but since then again same problem the, the bags are ripping, no one can surf it, and it produces a terrible wave. So it's just time and time again, it's, it's the same thing. Now, one thing I wanted to sort of touch on really, and, and it kind of relates to how much we talk about wave pools, is that on the Gold Coast right now and uh, over the past year, there's been a lot of talk about the surf breaks, particularly the Superbank being overpopulated. And last year during the Quicksilver Pro, Mick Fanning, Steph Gilmore and Rabbit all talked about building artificial reefs on the Gold Coast to try and reduce the overpopulation there. I think there was a few accidents. Slater got caught in a, in a beginner's leash at Snapper Rocks, and so it sort of sparked this debate. Is there not already an artificial there reef is at Naranek? Naranek, exactly. And that was built f 
uh, again to prevent coastal erosion and there was proposed uh, the original idea was it could also develop a better wave there now rabbit went on in a in an article to say how he said use a number of words i won't repeat but he said it's a, it was terrible produced a rubbish wave should never have been proposed as a surf reef and so now we're in a a, a position where there might be an alternative to artificial reefs you know how uh, can wave pools uh, reduce the overpopulation of surf breaks? Will it help? Now, I took a, took a couple of figures from Surf Snowdonia, probably the, the best example we have right now of the future potentially of, of a wave pool. You know, it's a better wave than uh, Wadi and, and the one Derek surfed in Florida a few weeks ago. And now, they had, in their first full year opening, they had 150,000 people go through the door. Now, that's f I, I think that's pretty good considering it's in North Wales in a tiny little United Kingdom. And so could something, uh, uh, maybe a grander scale in on the Gold Coast, could it help with the problem of overpopulation i guess the question is would it be like roads you know when there when there's too much traffic and you build more roads then for a while there's less traffic and then the amount of traffic expands to fill the roads mm -hmm. or you know when you've got a lot of work to do and you have a lot more time to do it the amount of work you have expands to fill the <laughs> yeah. amount of time you have yeah. to do the work yeah and i mean I, I don't know what the answer is to that question I, my feeling is probably a bit of both i think that there would be it would take the pressure off the amount of people surfing but then also it would draw more people into surfing eventually and then the pools would be full, the ocean would be full again, and then you build more. Yeah. I went a couple of years ago to the Surf Park Summit, which is a sort of conference organized around wave pools and artificial waves. And Sean Thompson gave a really interesting talk about the idea of rather than worrying about artificial reefs as such, or wave pools, you know, inland, was the idea of strategically building groins to collect sand. Because... Actually, most coastlines where you have that, that transfer of sediment, if you put a groin in, it quite quickly develops quite good shaped waves. I don't know that he'd had much environmental studies because <laughs> I seem to remember from my geography that, that groins are a terrible thing for the uh, the local landscape generally. But It's interesting actually how hard it is to build a reef. I mean, mm. I remember you know when I was young and spending a lot of time traveling around Nindo, just sitting at places like Lakey Peak and... And just thinking, well, you know, you could just go down, you could like map this whole reef using some kind of technology that I don't understand, like, uh, you know, sonar or whatever. And then you could build a 3D image of it and then you could just replicate it. And there you go, you've got a reef. But I guess it's just a lot more complicated than that. I remember, this is going back quite a few years, but when you and me used to work together in the UK, I remember you having an idea that we were going to take the kids club that we coached at low tide oh, I don't know what you're and send them all down at low tide with shovels <laughs> to try to create a new sandbag. Well, they, <laughs> need, they could do to learn what a hard day's work was. <laughs> I remember you, you explaining how you were going to get them to do it one day. <laughs> oh, that does sound like me. Um, so with all the mechanical problems that wave pools have had recently and with artificial reefs seeming to fail at every opportunity probably no better time just to go to the actual beach and go for a surf <laughs> <laughs> so listener emails just as a quick heads up on this one if any of you listeners would like to record your questions and comments to us that would be really really cool we can then play them out on air you can record just directly into your phone whether it's an android or an iphone or a windows phone or whatever version it is you just need to use the voice memo function what if it's a motorola 
Then <laughs> <laughs> they probably need to just email us. Yeah, they, they might need to go back and just email us. So yeah, if you record it on the voice function and when you record it, remember to give us your name and uh, where you're coming from and then email it to us. Uh, you can email me podcast at surfsimply.com. If the file is a bit too big to email, then let me know and we can share it through Dropbox or Google Drive or whatever. Just one quick email for this week. Uh, Gary Hoover got in touch to say that if anyone was interested by Rue's talk last week about animal populations and things like that, a little book recommendation, which is The Third Chimpanzee by Jared Diamond. Uh, and I'll put a link to that is on Kindle and also on Audible. You'll be glad to know, Rue. So I do like a, my Audible books. Indeed. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, just before we go then, some what to watches. Will, anything caught your eye over the last week or so? Yes. Yes, it has, Harry. Uh, hopefully, some of you have already seen it. It is the interview on the Today Show, the Australian Today Show, with Sabre Norris, the 11-year-old surfer who got selected as a wild card. She's amazing. Oh, my God. She is the funniest person I've ever seen have on you, TV. Have, have, have <laughs> you uh, been following her Instagram? No. No. Oh, her, she's got an amazing Instagram account. It's run by her dad, I think, actually. Yeah. But it's just like little video clips of her on a half pipe. She had a lot to say about her dad during the interview. Oh, really? Just not to give it away to <laughs> It is hilarious. It is very, very funny. Yeah. But yeah, she, like you said, she got wildcarded into a women's 6,000. WQS yeah. 6,000 event, yeah. which is awesome. And she rips. Asher. My what to watch this week is Kai Lenny towing in at Jaws. He restored my faith in tow-in surfing. I was pretty uninterested in it, but watching him carve across jaws and just boost that massive air on the end ball, I was pretty into it. So cool. I think that's definitely worth checking out. Root, anything caught your eye? I actually really enjoyed Chris Grow, who most of you guys will know from the Shred Show, but has now been employed by Firewire. He did a really good little video just about the different materials that Firewire are using, TimberTech, uh, LTF, and F. TS and explain what they are and you know why you might want to buy one or the other of them it's not you know it's not like a a beautiful piece of dramatic surfing but I did find it really really interesting yeah no they're interesting uh my piece actually is probably going to make about half of you listeners really angry with me but uh I'm going to suggest a thing called the progression project which is something that our friend Eric Antonson who, who lives in town with us and he's really into SUP surfing I like how we've managed to avoid the whole episode talking about the election through the risk of polarizing our listenership. And now we've done it by talking about SUPs. <laughs> yeah, well, he's, his, his movie, you know, he's surfing SUPs that are smaller than some of my shortboards, but super, super low volume. He refers to it as paddle assisted surfing rather than SUP surfing. But anyway, he got some of the best guys uh, in the world together and they made this real cool little video. It is free to download. Uh, and I'll put the links. I can't link to it in the show notes because you have to go to their website and just put a put your email in and you get a, a password to where you can watch the video. But it's just very, very cool. I think a lot of us see people wobbling around on SUPs and having a really hard time and falling off and not making much of the wave. And these guys are boosting airs and doing big full rail cutbacks. And it's it's very, very cool. I love the big uh, layback. I'm out surfing with Eric quite a lot. And I love those big laybacks that he does. Yeah. Anyway, check that out, listeners. And uh, if, if you are interested in the stand-up paddle surfing, Eric does a really good podcast called Paddle Woo, uh, which I'll link to as well. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, that is all that we have time for, I'm afraid. If you want to get in touch with us for any thoughts or suggestions, please email me at podcast at surfsimply. You can reach the guys on their Twitter handles. Asher, you're at? At King underscore Asher. Aren't you King underscore underscore Asher? Yeah, yeah, I'm actually, so Instagram, <laughs> I'm King underscore Asher, and then that was taken uh, on Twitter, so I'm now King 
two underscore Asher. Very catchy. Rue, we can get you at? Uh, I'm at Surfing Simply. And Will? I am at Will and the Water. What are you, Harry? I am at HJM Knight. Uh, but for now, ladies and gentlemen, it is goodbye from all of us. Bye. Bye. That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply coaching resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com.